king. I fear I might have gotten my wires crossed a little bit yesterday. That does happen every 10, 20 years or so. And uh, may have confused you a little. Uh, when I was discussing Moab and Ammon as well as Edom, and I think I sort of lumped them together. Someone mentioned that, but there is a distinction. We today know of Moab and Ammon basically as the country of Jordan. And you might remember that they were the descendants of Lot through his incestuous relationship with his daughters, or must I say, their relationship with him, because he was too drunk to know. But uh, be that as it may, I think it's very interesting that perhaps Moab and Ammon are in the state of Utah to a great degree. Uh, that also is a religion that has had a lot of polygamy and a lot of incest, and that may have carried through. At the same time, Edom or Esau, which the Bible, Edom clearly is defined as the descendants of Esau, Esau being a red man, and that may be where you have that red and blonde coming from. Uh, I don't know that I can prove these things necessarily, but uh, Scripture seems to indicate that in a far land, or a land of great distances, as we'll get to a little later in Isaiah, is where God's church would be today, and that's where God's church is. The Mormon religion and the Mormon people are really quite different than anyone else in the United States. Uh, that is the only state that is run by a church, and truly it is run by the church. Uh, and the people are a bit different, and certainly the religion is different. Uh, it, it seems on the surface to be a fairly pleasant religion because it emphasizes family and home and so on. But when you get into some of the doctrines that that church believes, they are so far removed from the Bible, it is unbelievable, as most religions are. But there is a distinction between Moab and Ammon and that of Edom. I think I sort of ran those together and may have confused you on that. Also, uh, I think there may have been some confusion in Isaiah 22, uh, one person at least mentioned that and said someone else says, I got kind of confused there, and I'm not sure exactly what part of it was that it was. Let's go back there for a moment and pick it up. To me, it was fairly clear that the Valley of Vision is speaking of a, is a prophecy about and against Jerusalem, against Judah in particular in that sense, and I think that the thread there of spiritual Judah certainly runs through here. Uh, Isaiah mentions in verse 4 that he had to look away and weep bitterly because he couldn't stand to look upon what was about to happen to Judah. Whether it be spiritual Judah that we're considering here, and it's hard to look upon what's happening to the church today, isn't it? As well as what's happening or will happen to the physical Jews. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the Valley of Vision, or the capital in Jerusalem, breaking down the walls and crying to the mountains, and then it talks about some of the enemies that will do it. Verse 8, and he discovered the covering of Judah. Uh, look under the blankets, in other words, and what was really there. And you to look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. 
Judah perhaps used as an analogy there of a forest and uh, looking at the armor that was there and it, it didn't amount to much. You have seen also the breaches of the city of David. I thought this section was fairly clear uh, whether it be the nations of Judah and the people of Judah who have great cracks and holes in the walls or whether it be the church. Both threads certainly are there and the church is certainly cracked and split apart so the breaches are many in the church and you have numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses which you have broken down to fortify the wall maybe there was some confusion there I don't know uh, if you're a nation and you're numbering the houses and numbering the people generally it's for war now let's look upon it maybe from the standpoint of the church which grew big and thought it could do a great deal on its own and began to think that because of sheer numbers and sheer amounts of money God wasn't all that needed I didn't really expound on this a great deal but you can stop on any one of these verses or passages and spend a lot of time on I don't want to take five years to go through this book uh, maybe a few more weeks but as we'll see when we get a little further in this chapter there's a lot that I could have gone to and could have shown and I want to leave some of that to you and not be too bogged down here besides that I wanted to get past some of these things and get into more pleasant things this being the Feast of Tabernacles yet on the other hand we have to consider what we read in chapter 1 of Isaiah that God has been very unhappy with the feasts and speaking of the end time church of worldwide now I think both in terms of when those feasts were kept because they became our feasts instead of God's feasts being kept on the wrong days and I think in terms of value they became our feasts instead of God's feasts because we were coming basically to entertain ourselves to enjoy ourselves and not coming to worship the king and that is reflected by the types of these sites that people began to say God had placed his name on when I think really it was we're placing our name on because we want to go there and play whether it be Orlando or Branson or some of those like that or as I mentioned the touring feast in Italy yeah right I'm going to go look at old ruins all day long and visit different places and then I'm going to be focused on God through that eight days, and I'm certainly going to be focused on him that night when I'm dead beat, tired, probably just ate a great big meal, and sat down to listen to a Bible study or a sermon that evening? Yeah, right. So I think we need, need to have considered some pretty serious things here at the feast. Some people, I heard one comment, someone said, well, why can't the feast be like it used to be where we came and we heard about lions and lambs and how things will be in the millennium and went away feeling really good? Well, I'll tell you why they can't be. Because God wasn't happy with those feasts. Those are the feasts we had that God was not happy with. Because that's not all we talk about now I have no problem about talking of millennial conditions and we have a little bit here in the book of Isaiah and we will a great deal more today for that matter very uplifting inspiring sections are coming up 
But when God has splintered the church and says he can't look upon our feet and can't stand the smell or the sight of them, I think we have to begin to question if we were doing it right. And if we were doing, weren't doing it right, what were we doing wrong? I think that's the problem with a lot of organizations today, is that they're simply trying to recreate worldwide. And it is worldwide that God was so upset with. That's why he scattered us. So this is the time, if our practice of religion has not been correct, that we should think seriously about correcting whatever it is that we did wrong. Now, I can remember feasts in the past, where I did not devote my focus and attention to God in the way that I should have and got busy with this and that and the other thing and didn't do it. I can think of other feasts which stick out in my mind as times when I really did seek God during the feast. And there's no question in my mind which ones he was happier with me about. Not that we can't have fun and fellowship because the millennium will be a peaceful co-existence of all the people, as well as the leadership, and with God, with the Father and the Son ruling here on the earth. So, um, you know, we have to seriously question. We have to think about it. And I think that we did get proud and vain and worldwide, because that's what got talked about an awful lot, was how many booklets were going out, how big the plain truth was, how many members we had, uh, a worldwide thing and we had movies with pictures of jet airplanes and Herbert Armstrong smiling as he went to a dinner that he had bought with world leaders and we became proud and thought we had need of nothing and God has shaken us to the roots to the core now let's go on down and understand that perhaps we became too dependent upon ourselves. So we've numbered the houses, we've numbered the people. How many people dwell here in this spiritual house or physically in our houses? And we've become too dependent upon numbers and money. And certainly that was a great deal of the emphasis was numbers and money. And I think that's one of the main reasons I feel turned off by numbers and money today. That is not our concern. I don't care how many people are here. I don't care how big the offerings are. That's between you and God. And whether or not you and He have a relationship that He would be pleased with and that you can give from a merry heart. I have no idea how big the offerings have been this year. Not counted a bit of it. Now, that doesn't mean I despise it and don't appreciate it, because we can use the money certainly very well. But on the other hand, that's not my focus or concern. I suppose Marla will count it up when she starts making bank deposits. But don't you remember how it used to be at the feast? When all the deacons and deaconesses and elders and armbands would all just exit the auditorium as soon as the offering was given, so they could go back and spend the whole time counting money instead of listening to the sermons. Now, what was important? Why couldn't it wait an hour and a half? Man, we've got to go to county now. How much did we get? Oh, oh, oh. 
And I mean we were, it's the ministry and a local feast. Like Pentecost where everybody wasn't gathered together. We had to call it into Pasadena almost as soon as the service was over. They had to know how much money was coming. It used to irritate me no end. Why can't this wait a day or two for pity's sake? I had to be down there just as soon as the post office opened the next day, according to the rules, and get that in a special envelope, special delivery overnight as much as possible to be sure they got that money just as quick as they could. Now, is that the right focus? Numbered the houses, numbered the dollars. And then look to ourselves for protection instead of to God. To a bevy of lawyers and raiders. Radar. <laughs> Very close, raider and radar. He could see money through brick walls. <laughs> but we didn't look enough to God. Our Maker, verse 11, neither had respect to him that passioned it long ago. And in that day did the eternal God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. And instead, or and behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Now, is that the confusing part? Let's examine verse 12. I could have gone here yesterday, maybe I needed to. Let's go to Joel 2. Joel 2. In a time of trouble, where things are breaking down, what does God say? Verse 12 of Joel 2. Therefore also now, says the Eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Who knows if he will return and relent? Who knows if he'll lift the punishment and the chastening that is upon us and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering or a meal offering and a drink offering to the eternal your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Set it aside for holy use, in other words. Assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. If you're about to get married, he says, forget that. We've got something more important to do here at the moment. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Why are they in this condition? Now, doesn't that fit very well with verse 12 of Isaiah 22? And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. This is the time, just prior to the true day of the Lord and the great tribulation, that he's speaking of. I mean, that's what Joel is about, is the day of the Lord, all these events that are leading up to the day of the Lord. Now he beheld instead of what God instead of what God was seeking, what did he behold? He beheld joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine, and an attitude of let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. 
All right, let's pick that one up and go to Matthew 25. Or Matthew 24, I'm sorry, is what I wanted. Here he's talking about the tribulation of those days in verse 29, and the appearance of the sign of man in the heavens. Verse 32, are the parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise, when you see all these things, all this trouble coming, you know that it is near even at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. I think he's speaking of our generation when he says that, because he's speaking to the generation who begins to see these things happen. So, if that's the generation he's speaking to, he's speaking to us. He wasn't speaking into the, to the generation in Matthew's day. They didn't see all these things happening. Who, who is? We are. So he says, this generation will not pass who sees these things happening. And remember, Haggai says that the former temple was viewed by old men who still are alive and remain, who can see the latter temple in its glory. So from the time the former temple under Herbert Armstrong and later Joe Koch was destroyed, until the latter temple has its fullness and height and glory, there will be old people, same generation, who will be able to compare the two. So it's talking about now. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So this thing is going to happen, just like I say. But at that day and hour knows no man, no not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Doesn't mean we won't know the season. He says when you see the fig tree putting on leaves, you know summer is nigh. So you can know pretty close, eventually. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriages, slaying oxen, slaying lambs, drinking wine, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not, didn't wake up, didn't realize, until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. This world is going to say, party on. And when anyone stands up, and they will, and warn them that the end is near, they're going to say, no, we already have a new world order. Everything's fine. Everything's going all right. America's destroyed the great enemy, the great horror, and now we can live on. And they will not know. And most of the church, to a great degree today, is partying on. We have to get rid of that mentality. We have to be drawing close to God with our whole heart, not partying with all our might. We'd better get that through our heads. We are called to do a job. Those he, whom he's opening the scriptures to today, he says to several times, Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Not play, work. We have a job to do to prepare for others. Now maybe that isn't the part that was unclear, but I thought I should throw Joel and Matthew in there to see the contrast of what God is seeking and what he's looking down in the church and seeing. Now he may be seeing that in others, but we need to be very careful he doesn't see it in us too. Are we so different?
different than the others. Maybe we've recognized that we shouldn't go to the places where this world has its entertainment and the mall should not be the focus of our feast or Disney World or something of that nature. But have we made that transition where God is the center and the focus of our feast? That's what we have to consider. Not that we can't enjoy, because he did say at the feast, to enjoy food and drink. Everything in moderation, of course. But the main focus has to be God. And it was revealed in my ears by the Lord of hosts, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, says the eternal host. God says most will have to die before these attitudes change from what they are to what God wanted them to be. So in terms of the thread of the church, most will spiritually die or be very, very sick before this changes. And as far as the nation is concerned, most will physically die before this changes. <clears throat> Thus says the eternal God of hosts, Go get you to this treasure, even the Shebna, which is over the house. Now, maybe the Shebna and Eliakim part is what was a little unclear. Someone did mention that possibly Shebna represented worldwide, and that Eliakim represents the latter temple or church. And I think that those that thread could very obviously be there. Uh, I would say, well, let's, or let me back up just a moment. Worldwide had a man who we consider our king and counselor, right? Uh, we read about that in Micah 4. Our counselor is dead, our king is perished, or vice versa. And the daughter of Zion is in great travail, like giving birth. We're having trouble giving birth to Christ in our lives, and we're having trouble having the kind of church that Christ would have. <clears throat> now, Herbert Armstrong died, and if there was too much emphasis on numbers and money before that, after Tkachis took over, it became even greater. Now, maybe Shebna was the servant in the king's house. Tkachis may have been the servant in Herbert Armstrong's house. And when Herbert Armstrong died, he took over and lifted himself up in vanity and ego, and that's what this big sepulcher represents. And it wasn't long until he went into his sepulcher, was it? I don't know. The, the story is very similar, very interesting. So you, you want to make a name for yourself so that even after you're dead, people will say, look at how Tkach transformed the church from this legalistic, law-abiding to a church of grace, a Pentecostal, hallelujah-singing, Protestant denomination. It's not what he thought, but that's what I'm saying. He thought what he would do would transform the church and it would become a glorious church. That's what he really thought. Even when he changed the doctrine of tithing and said you don't need to tithe anymore, that gives you a little clue about tithing, doesn't it? The clock's changed that where you didn't need to do it. What he said when he changed it was, I know that you have so much love for God and so much love for His work and so much love for everything 
that if you don't tithe, you'll just give more than you did when you tithed. And the income dropped like a rock. And he quickly reinstituted tithing. Oops. It's the only thing he ever changed back that he liberalized. But he thought he was going to make a great name for himself. Maybe that even after he died, that name would continue. It didn't happen that way. He died, and it kept sinking like a rock. It's virtually gone to this day. It says, Behold, the Eternal will carry you away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover you. Cover you up. He's planted in the ground. He will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. Has a world worldwide sort of just been bounced around and lost everything they had? There's a strange Oriental religion that's taking over the auditorium today. Not me, no today, but right now. There shall you die, and there the chariots of your glory shall be the shame of the Lord's house. So all the things that he thought he was going to do are shameful today. That building, which was dedicated to the great God, has been turned over to a satanic oriental religion. That's a far country that has been bounced to. China or Japan or Korea or wherever those particular doofuses come from. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, that was another servant that was in that same house, same king. He worked with Shebna. God is going to call some leadership now in the church that has been associated all along. Not some Johnny-come-lately who sets himself up as a leader. God doesn't work that way. Never has. I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your girdle, and I will commit your government into his hand, and he shall be a father of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now where is that power going to be given? It will be given to the two witnesses is where it's going to be given. Read Revelation 3, and it uses this very same language. Maybe I should turn back there and read that. Maybe true Philadelphia attitude. The angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Revelation 3, 7, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens has kept God's word and not denied his name. And those who say they are Jews and are not, are not spiritual Jews at all, will come and worship at your feet, knowing that I've loved you. So the boot polishers will show up as well. Now, let's understand this a little bit. Uh, in Ezekiel 34, I referred briefly to that, but I want to go to three or four scriptures here and show something. Uh, let's go first of all though, to Ezekiel 34. Now this prophecy is against the ministry today and we did read this a little bit and I touched on, I think, down in verse 23 after, after he shows that he's taking the flocks away from the ministry 
and knocking them down. Verse 23, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Eternal, have spoken it. And I will make a, with them a covenant of peace, not just with David, but with them. There are going to be two leaders at the end. One is a type of David. And will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. So God is going to cause those who would destroy his people to be taken away from them, and they will rest safely in the wilderness. Now this is premillennial. Now Christ is going to sit on the throne of David someday too in the millennium. That's where that thread goes. But this other one is in the church prior to that ever even happening. Um... All right. Oh, I have to go back here. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And here I want about verse 15. Verse 14. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, to the church, uh, not just to the physical Israel. In those days, and at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up to David. Now, didn't we read in Zechariah 3, and Zechariah 6, and in Isaiah 31, I believe verse 37, that there will be a branch in the end, and that branch is named bow or limb. So these two are tied together here in Jeremiah. In those days will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up to David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safely. And this is the name where she will be called the Lord our righteousness. So he says in Isaiah 54 that our righteousness is not of ourselves, but of him. So God is going to give us righteous leadership in the form of those who will lead the sheep gently and lovingly and kindly as David would have done instead of the way we did it in the past and worldwide with abuse and misuse. God is going to cause that to happen. Let's see it further in Isaiah 55. We would get to this in this series, but let's see it here in this connection. Isaiah 55. Here he's just beginning to tell the church to enlarge their tents. After he tells us to get out of Babylon, the end of chapter 52, then he shows that we come to know and understand the sacrifice of Christ better, which I think we're doing through Passover and the knowledge of the Days of Unleavened Bread now. Then he says, soon after that, next chapter, to enlarge the place of your tent because God is going to begin to bless and the numbers will begin to grow. And I believe that's talking about uh, his remnant and it's certainly talking about the bride because it says in verse 5 of chapter 54, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his, is his name, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. It's a church that's going to be redeemed from the world and the bride that is going to be prepared. So, this is not speaking of the millennium per se. Verse 7, For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercy will I gather you. So he's talking about gathering beforehand. 
righteousness is of me, says at the end of verse 17. But notice that the context is still premillennial in the part in the first part of verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. Now the bride is not going to have anyone lift a weapon against her once the resurrection occurs. So this has to be prior to that. Then he says, Everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come by and eat. Test, come by wine and milk without money and without price. And hearken diligently to him in verse 2. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, beginning to really start the new covenant. Even the sure mercies of David... Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. We have to have a witness at the end. And it has to be someone who will come with the same type of leadership that David would have rendered. And we're still talking pre-millennial here. He says, Turn to him, uh, verse 6, Seek you the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. That's not millennial. Uh, that's talking about calling out to him. Now, we'll be right with him in the millennium, won't we? Once we're resurrected, we'll be ever with him. So we won't need to be calling for him then. This has got to be prior to that. That God is sending the right kind of leadership to us. Notice chapter 56, verse 8. The Lord God, which gathers the outcasts of Israel, says... Yet will I gather others to him besides the, beside those that are gathered to him. Now, the, the subject hasn't changed. Still talking about David being a witness back in 55 and 4. And yet David, the original man, has not been resurrected to this point. He's still in his grave until the resurrection when we're all changed. Uh, Hosea 3, verse 5. Let's look at one more. Hosea 3. Verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince. Didn't we just quote Micah 4? Says our counselors perish, our king is dead. And without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim, uh, Old Testament uh, terminology, or New Testament leadership. Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the eternal and his goodness in the latter days. Not in the millennium, but in the latter days. Now let's go back to Isaiah 22. It would appear that this Eliakim was a righteous man, though Shebna was over the money and became overly proud of himself in his position. But someone else coming out from that kingship or that line, and I think it's interesting the word Eliakim, and I didn't comment on this yesterday, means God of raising. I mentioned what it meant. But God is going to use this Eliakim to raise something up. The latter temple. And no one will be able to stop it. No one can shut it down. And 
will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. The glory of the latter temple will far outshine that of the former temple. And they'll hang the glory of his father's house, the offspring, the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of dragons. The accoutrements, the strengths of the former temple will still be there. They'll be hung in the latter temple as well. In that day, says the eternal host, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. Now that might be a little confusion, but it says the burden that was upon it shall be cut off. Now is he talking about the nail that we read about in verse 23, or was it, or does that refer back to Shebna, who thought he was in a pretty sure place, and yet got cut down, and replaced by a nail that is put in a sure place that remains? Uh, to understand this in this way, I think that's about the way that has to be. I hope that makes this section a little clearer. I didn't elaborate that much yesterday. Now, interestingly enough, we go from there to chapter 23 entire, and I would like to tie in one more scripture with this before we go on to chapter 20. I didn't forget where we were, by the way. Uh, I know we've got to get into 25, but... Uh, there is there's an interesting chapter that I want to tie in with chapter 23. I think probably the thing on Tyre was fairly clear. I didn't hear any question on that. But let's go to Zechariah 9. If there's anyone here who still has a question as to whether all these prophecies back in Isaiah have to do with end-time Israel and the end-time church, let's go to Zechariah, which is unquestionably an end-time book. Zechariah 9. This one says, The burden of the word of the eternal in the land of Hadrach and Damascus. Okay, this is speaking of Syria. Isn't that what we've been reading about in these early chapters of Isaiah? And Hamath, which is in Syria, also shall border thereby. Tyrus and Sidon, though it be very wise, and Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. So Tyrus, as in ancient Israel, in the end time, is also a financial center. And the ancient Tyre is gone. Then scraped off. It was an island off the coast of Lebanon there, and they built a causeway out to it, so it was a great port, and yet had connection to the mainland, and when they took it, they destroyed it, scraped it clean. New York is an island right off the coast with causeways, that is bridges or tunnels, both, connecting it to the mainland, and it is a great port, and it is also a financial center. London is not exactly that. It's, a little, it's inland. I forget how far, 30, 40, 50 miles I rode the train from Dover into London once, and I, it wasn't a long ride. I don't remember exactly how far it was. The Thames River does come through there, which makes it a port city, but it's not an island sitting off. If you look at a, a map of ancient Tyre, or how the city was laid out, and New York is purely similar to it. Behold, the Eternal will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, that is where all the trading went on. This is reminiscent of, that, of uh, 
Revelation 17 and 18, and she shall be devoured with fire. Remember the fire coming out of those towers? I think that's only the beginning. Only the beginning. But this is an end-time prophecy about an end-time fire. That fire that was back then, that existed when the prophecy was made, is no longer there. So it cannot be the subject of Zechariah whatsoever. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. Now, these were other cities of Israel right along the coast. And if they see fire, which may be modern-day New York, destroyed, do you not think that Boston and Baltimore uh, and Washington, D.C., and all those cities along the coast would not fear and tremble? And the bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, verse 6, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. All the areas of Palestine that were Canaanites and Philistines who inhabited the promised land would be cut off, that is, the Gentiles, Israel's enemies. So they're going to destroy us, and then they also will be destroyed. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth, but he that remains, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah. Zerubbabel was the governor in Judah, remember when they came out of Babylon? And Ekron as a Jebusite. There's not going to be much remaining when you talk of spiritual Israel or when you talk of physical Israel. And I will encamp about my house, his temple, because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returns. Remember it said back there, the Assyrian would shake his fist at God's holy people. But that's all he could do. For now have I seen with my eyes. No more oppressor will pass through. God will have seen who is faithful and who is not. Then he will know. Remember what he said to Abraham after the almost sacrifice of Isaac? Now I know. And he will say of us, when we have been faithful and strong and true, I have seen with my eyes that my people will be faithful. Then he says, immediately after that, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes to thee. Who does the king first come to? His bride. The first resurrection. 144,000 and no more. The other thread, physical Israel, comes later. When he comes down from a year's honeymoon, and takes over and begins the millennium. So there's still, still two threads of thought running through here. Two fulfillments. One is always a little earlier than the other. So the church, the bride, has its fulfillment first, and physical Israel comes right behind, and it's a little bit later, as always. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Who's Ephraim? God changed the birth order in Jeremiah 31 and said, Ephraim is my firstborn. Who are we? The firstfruits? We'll be the firstborn. Christ was the first of the firstborn, but we'll be the firstborn in his kingdom beyond, or just behind Christ. And he'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall seek peace to the heathen. When this is all done, he'll begin to call the heathen and seek peace to them finally. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. 
So this thing is going to stretch on forth until Christ rules the whole world. But he's got to rule us first, doesn't he? Once he gets us properly ruled, and he's made peace in the church, then he can use the church to make peace in the world. Verse 11, It's for you also, by the blood of the covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. God is giving us living water through Jesus Christ being cut off. What is the blood of the covenant? Christ's blood is the blood of the new covenant. All right, what does he say? Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. God is going to bless. Where is the stronghold? Place of refuge. He says, turn there. When, when these dangerous things start happening, that's when he says in Zechariah 2, flee to Zion. Save yourselves, he says. God isn't just going to go around the world and pick people up and take them somewhere. They have to get there. He says they will come from all over. They will come. He's not going to send them a chariot and bring each one, as some have assumed. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. We've been prisoner in Babylon now for about 70 years in this end-time age. Prisoners with a hope that we would someday be released. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you when I have bent Judah for, for me, fill the bowl with Ephraim, and raise up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. O God is going to turn this around where his people have been persecuted, have been looked down upon, have been hissed at and laughed at because their church fell apart. God is going to turn it around and he is going to make them the power that stands against the world. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. I'd rather have God's arrow as lightning than I had all the Gentiles' tanks and planes put together. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The eternal host shall defend them. He won't let them be killed. And they shall devour and subdue with sling stones a reference back to David and Goliath. And they shall drink and make a noise as through wine. And they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. Wine is a symbol of wealth. Only the wealthy could afford to drink wine in Old Testament times. God will give us spiritual wealth and strength. Right now we're small and weak, ineffectual, but strength will be given. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown. Now this is, if we're faithful and remain true and strong, when he makes up his crown, what's he going to do? Make us the jewels in it. For they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. Who will be leading them? The two witnesses. Who is set up as an ensign and had uh, uh, Haggai, chapter 2, last verse? Zerubbabel. 
the end-time church with its leadership will be an ensign or a banner or a flag that will be shoved in the face of the whole world. Now let's look a little further here in chapter 10. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. When this gets close, we're supposed to begin to ask for blessing. There's a point at which we now do as we read there in Isaiah 22, and mourn and wear sackcloth and ashes and fast and ask God for help, and it's a time of repentance is what we're in. But there comes a time, at the time of the latter rain, where he starts praying. He says, pray for rain. Pray for blessing. When the repenting is done, when we've made the changes we should make, then we begin to ask for blessing. But it takes us time to overcome our faults, our weaknesses, and our addictions, doesn't it? How long have I been preaching now? Two years at least about changing our diets and so on. And yet I heard just this morning that someone had said, well, we're having ice cream parties during the feast. I know it's sin, but I need to do it, or something to that effect. Or, oh, a little won't hurt. Well, if it's wrong, it's wrong, isn't it? If we should be changing our addictions, shouldn't we be changing our addictions? I mean, this is a small point. How about uh, a little embezzling? I know it's sin, but man, the bunny would be nice. How about a little adultery? Well, that ought to be all right. That, that sounds like fun. Just, just a little, you know, not a lot, but human reasoning can take us a lot of places. They're absolutely wrong to go. But it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time for us to overcome our addictions, whether they're big ones or little ones. I've mentioned some that are big and some that are little here. Some things are okay. Other things are wrong. Some things are okay in small amounts. Wine and honey. But we shouldn't have a big sweet tooth. Nor should we have a big wine tooth. We're not in the time yet, I don't believe, to start asking for God to give us untold blessings until we overcome some of our problems and difficulties and addictions, sins and weaknesses. We are still in a time of repentance, a time of change. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. God's people, by a lot of ministers today, are being comforted in vain, being told everything will be okay, stay in this organization, pray and pay, and everything will work out fine. You'll go to a place of safety and you'll be in the kingdom of God. How many times have I said this broken record? But that's the way it is. And anyone who tells me to preach or thinks that we ought to preach that way, be it feast or not feast, I'm not going to do it. 
I am not going to comfort in vain. We are still in a time where we need to change, grow, and overcome. How can we be a light to the world if we are unwilling or unable to change little and big habits and get in line with what God wants done? I still fight mine. I'm not just jumping on you. I still fight myself every day. I went into the convenience store the other day and they had one of these jelly-filled donuts on the counter all by itself. It looked so lonely. And I was hungry. And then my old paw starts coming up. And I'm glad that girl that was waiting on someone else didn't turn around and say, Can I get that for you? I'm afraid I said, Yes, yes. But she didn't, thankfully. I pulled my hand back and stuck it in my pocket and walked out. But for some reason, that, that poor thing sitting there with a little bit of that strawberry-looking stuff oozing out really caught my eye. We're addicted to those things. It takes time. It takes power that can only come from God, I guess. Or as we, we begin to walk in the Spirit. And that's, yeah, that's a small thing in a way. And yet, doesn't it reflect an attitude overall? If we're not faithful in the little stuff, how are we going to be faithful in the big stuff? I don't mean this is a chew-out session. All I mean it is, uh, we've got to keep working at these things, day by day, working at them, overcoming them, growing, changing our way and our values. He doesn't want us comforting in vain. Therefore they went their way. As a flock they were troubled because there was no shepherd. Now those telling them that everything's okay, everything's all right, we're all Philadelphians here, those other people have a problem. Somewhere, on some level, anyone who has God's Spirit at all is going to begin to realize that that is an empty message. That's what it says here. They were troubled because there was no shepherd to lead them in the right way. So what does God say? My anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. They were leading people the wrong way. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Now God says, I'm going to turn this around. I want Judah to be my goodly horse. I want them to go to war with me to turn this world around, to change it, to make it right, to make it holy, to make it righteous and peaceful. So out of him, out of Christ, who is going to make Judah his goodly horse, out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight, because the Eternal is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. Now, the only time I see that in Scripture being fulfilled is when God raises up two who cannot be killed for three and a half years, who can bring plagues and trouble and torment, it says, on the world, and fire will come from their mouths and devour those who would kill them. God is going to add strength. Now, I think this lends uh, credence to what I presented to you in Isaiah 20, 
too, along with those others, about God providing the right kind of leadership that would give his people a true message, and at the same time will be used of God to show his strength. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim, that is, the firstborn, the firstfruits, shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine, yes, their children shall see it, and be glad, their hearts shall rejoice in the eternal. Now, doesn't it say, and didn't we see in the, uh, at the end of the Minor Prophet series, Book of Malachi, what the real work of Elijah is? Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And I pointed out that it's on three levels. First of all, our hearts have to turn to our Father in heaven that will cause his heart to turn to us. We have to do it first. You will find him when you seek him with your whole heart, it says in Jeremiah. That's the first level that must be done. And then, our hearts have to be turned to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's what Elijah prayed when he went up against the priests of Baal. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said, show your mighty hand. All right, we've got to be turned to our Father in heaven. We've also got to be turned to the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Hebrews 11 and other places. We've got to come to live, think, and act as they acted. We have to become types of them. Think like, act like, walk like they acted and live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So we have to begin to walk by faith, not by sight. Now the third level in which the hearts of the fathers and children must be turned is on a physical, familial level. Right now, I dare say it is virtually impossible in most cases to earn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers. There are so many glittering things in this world that turn the hearts of the children there rather than to God, his people, and his church. And I don't know how you could possibly turn that around now. But when the things that Elijah did begin to come to pass, the kids' jaws will drop in utter amazement. Because when that prayer was prayed, it got all Israel's attention. They've been worshippers of Baal. But when Elijah prayed, and that fire came down from heaven and licked up the wood, the animals, the water, everything there, whoosh, and it was all gone. Everybody said, ooh. All Israel was there to watch this. And then Elijah lined up over 400 prophets and priests of Baal and whacked all their heads off right down the line. And all Israel said, ooh. And you think those kids didn't have a different viewpoint? It's not going to happen again. Someone has to come in the power of Elijah. Herbert Armstrong did not do that. We had a 
very weak, pitiful YOU program that did a little here and there, but it turned the hearts of the children to YOU and to basketball and to counselors. didn't really turn them to God, maybe a little bit here and there, but not like it did in the days of Elijah. That has to happen again. Something has to be done that will capture the interest of our children. God is not calling most of the generation that came from us. Just not calling most of them. They grew up in the church, but for the most part, they could care less. Some have a respect for the church, some don't. Even a child is known by his attitude. Part of that is our failure as parents to teach them properly and set the right example for them, and part of it is the glittering array that the world has out there for them. And let's face it, guys, we're just not as exciting as Game Boys. We're not as exciting as the glitterata they have out there and they can see on screens here and there. And they see a toothless church comprised mostly of an older generation who are basically doing nothing. How are they supposed to be impressed? And then they see us not doing always what this scripture says and then they think we're a bunch of hypocrites. You know what? I don't think I have to finish that. We've got to get serious. When God shows this kind of power, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. You see, we've got a job to do. We have got to get ourselves to the point God could use us in this fashion. We've got a job to do. Let's not let our children down. This prophecy has to be fulfilled. And those who read it and comprehend it and start doing something about it are going to be the ones that God can use. It can be us, can't it? Does it have to be somewhere else? Why can't it start here? It can. Maybe it has. But we have to follow through and finish it. You know, human beings tend to have, or have a tendency, to start something and not finish it, don't we? Or to give it a lick and a promise and say, that's good enough. We're supposed to be leaving those principles that we learned in the beginning and moving forward to maturity, as we heard in the sermon yesterday, or whenever it was. I would like for us to reach the point where the children will see what God does through us and be glad and rejoice. Now, that's something we need to give our children. They need to have that kind of leadership. We'll have to pay the price. This is a big job. God be done. I will hiss for them and gather them. I have redeemed them, and they shall, have, they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. 
I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place them and place shall not be found for them. That is, I'm going to start gathering and gathering and gathering pretty soon. The land's going to be full. He's got to start with us and then he's going to expand it to all Israel and bring them. He's going to bring the church, first of all, together to build the latter temple from all over the world, wherever the faithful ones are. And when that is done, we'll have the resurrection, the seven last plagues, and then he'll begin to gather physical Israel from all over the world until finally there's no place for them. He's got so many refugees. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea or among the peoples. And all the deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. So the military threat and might against his people will go away and so will the society of sin represented by Egypt. And I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Eternal. All right. I think it's good to tie that in with these chapters in Isaiah because it's saying essentially the same thing. It's looking forward to the return of blessing to the church and return of blessing to physical Israel. Now let's move on to chapter 25. Oh, wait a minute. I'm almost done already. Let's move on to chapter 25. I think we can finish at least one of these. We had a very positive note there in Zechariah 10 and how God will turn this thing around. Now let's look at it in 25. After he has given these burdens against these different peoples, against Israel and against their enemies, told how Israel will be put in war and then be redeemed, the church will go through the famine, pestilence, and so on, and then be redeemed, a remnant of it. And then... In chapter 24, he says that he's going to spread this to the whole world. And by the time he's done, only a few men will be left. After the seven last plagues, mankind's population is going to be almost gone compared to today. All right, now when he's done that, when he begins to reign, when he takes, starts taking hold, and he's going to do that before the millennium with us. through the work of the latter temple. And when that's done, and he starts doing it in the millennium, verse 23 of chapter 24, Then the moon shall be compounded and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion. Now the sun and moon will not be factors once the millennium starts, because the Father and the Son will be the light of it, Revelation 21. So when the sun and moon are confounded, we're still just before the millennium starts. Where when God begins to show his power through the latter temple of its leadership. That's where we are here. Then the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So right up to and including the time when the resurrection occurs and the ancients are even brought up. We're talking about the very end of the age and the beginning of the next. That's the setting as we begin chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. You can say this clearly now. Nobody will be saying among us, who is God? We'll know. We better find out now. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. We'll have begun to see the blessings return, see. The latter rains will have begun to come. And we can say you've done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. 
Man alive, the things you said would happen did. You see, if these bad things happen, then the good things that follow have to happen. If the church fell apart, then the church has to be regathered because God said both things, didn't he? If the evil comes, the good has to follow. And the same with the world. If Israel is destroyed, it must be regathered because God said so. His counsels are faithfulness and truth. For you, you have made of a city a heap, a pile of rocks and rubble. Of a defense city, a ruin, a palace of strangers, to be no city. It shall never be built. He's going to wipe out the society, and that's the end of it. Therefore, see, because you've been able to do that and done it, therefore shall the strong people, who's that? Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Enduring to the end takes strength. Called, chosen, and faithful. Therefore shall the strong people glorify you. The city of the terrible nation shall fear you. When God's done, the strong people will glorify him, and everyone that wasn't strong will be standing trembling. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. What did we read in Isaiah 4? He'll be a shadow from the heat, a covert, a strength, a refuge. What did we read in Zechariah 2? He would be a wall of fire around, a protection. Here it is. This is... This is showing that not only did God predict those things in Zechariah and early Isaiah, there will come a time when he has accomplished them. You shall bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place. Even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible one, shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of bad things, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, meat in other words, of wines on the leaves well refined. God is going to begin blessing again. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Now does he not say in Romans 11 that he has cast the veil essentially over all Israel and left them blind so that they cannot see, and he would have to destroy them. But there will come a time when this chastening has occurred, and then there will be of a humble, meek, listening attitude. And then he can tell them the truth. He can tell them those things which will save them. So the covering over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations will be lifted. He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the eternal has spoken it. That reminds you of Revelation 21, doesn't it? Where it's talking of the birth resurrection, and it says he will remove all tears from our eyes, all pain and all sorrow will go away, and we'll never have it again. That's where salvation starts. That's why it's the best in the first resurrection. It's going to start there. And it's going to spread through the millennium and the great white throne judgment until all people will have the tears and the sorrow wiped from their face. 
but it starts with us. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. No one will question anymore. We have waited for him. Doesn't he say endure to the end? Wait patiently? Doesn't he say in Habakkuk, wait, even though it seems like it's going to take forever, wait, it's going to happen, it will not tarry, it will hurry. Seems like a long time to us. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the eternal rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him. So somewhere within Moab, God's people are going to be protected. And Moab is told to protect his people. Didn't we read that back in chapter 16? And in that mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest. And Moab around it will be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swims spreads forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. That which they gathered up, we read in chapter 15, would be set aside for God's people. And even at the end of the uh, story about Tyre, he says, When she sings like a harlot, no man listens anymore. All of her things that had any value at all will be saved and put aside for God's faithful. And the fortress of the high fort of your wall shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, even to the dust. And that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Can we sing that yet? Maybe we're getting to the place we can sing hymns and feel strong a little bit in what little obedience we've begun to show in our turn to God, and we have a long way to go. But as we obey, and we gain in faith and in strength, we can sing it louder, can't we? Judah can't sing it until they kept wailing at the, weeping at the wailing wall, and God begins to bless the millennium. But we can begin as God begins to bless us. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Are we supposed to be building a wall against the world? A wall to keep all the things of the world away from us and out of our minds and hearts? Open you the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth or the truths may enter in. What people today have the truths that might even want to march in? Just the church. You will keep him in perfect peace. Haggai 2 verse 9. In this place will I bring peace. Whose mind is stayed on you. Or who rests on him. Because he trusts in you. That's why he will have trouble finding faith when he comes. Faith and trust are essentially the same thing. He's looking for us to walk by faith. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. For he brings down them that dwell on high. The lofty city he lays it low. He lays it low even to the ground. He brings it even to the dust. That's why he tells us to humble ourselves, and he will save for himself a poor and humble people there in Zephaniah 3. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. Malachi 4, verse 3, says we'll, be, we'll tread down the wicked as ashes under our feet. The way of the just is uprightness, 
You, most upright, do weigh the path of the just. God, who is the most just and the most upright, weighs the rest of us and ponders our heart, as Proverbs says. The way of just is uprightness. You, most high... Oh, I read that. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, have we waited for you. The desire of our soul is to your name and to the remembrance of you. We'll have God firmly implanted in our minds is what we look to and think about. With my soul have I desired you in the night. Yes, with my spirit within me will I seek you early. David said he thought of God in the night watches. He'd wake up and think about God. What do, we wake, what do we think about when we wake up? For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. That's the way this is all going to end in the millennium. Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. It doesn't do any good to cast your pearls before swine. You can tell them the truth, but it doesn't do any good until they're humbled, until they're ready to listen. How many people do you think, man, I could just tell this to so-and-so, and they'd be so happy? They don't like it at all, do they? Not in most cases. It doesn't do any good to show favor to the wicked, because he won't learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly, and will not behold the majesty of the eternal. Then he'll get no rain. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see. When he lifts his hand up, they won't see anything, but when his hand comes down, they're going to begin to wake up and see, and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. That's what it's going to take, unfortunately, for people to learn. What about us? Is it going to take the tribulation, or will we learn now? Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have also wrought all our works in us. He's the one who is working righteousness in us. This is his job. He is sovereign over us, and he is the one who works righteousness. It is not our righteousness, but his. Again, Isaiah 54, end of the chapter. O Lord our God, other lords beside you have had dominion over us. Have we been ruled over by others? Yes, we have. But by you only will we make mention of your name. You're the only ruler we'll remember or care about. They are dead that ruled over us before. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore have you visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. We're going to put all this behind. We'll no longer care nor worry about what happened to us before. All of our war stories about misuses and abuses in the church will be forgotten. And all of the misuse and abuse by physical government will also be forgotten. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the people. You are glorified. You had removed it far to the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. Now, he's talking about the destruction of the physical nation there. But what does he tell his people? The end of this chapter is very encouraging, and I want to read it, and we'll wrap it up there. Verse 17. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain, and cries out in her pains, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Right here at the end, we're crying out. We're not killing calves and kids and laughing and partying. We're praying and repenting and changing and growing and helping each other to get prepared to do a job for God. That's our goal and our purpose. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we as it were brought forth wind, not children, not produce, not a product, not fruit, but just empty air. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, 
neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So this is that period of time right before the church is to give birth to righteousness and peace and happiness and joy in the birth of Christ in us and his shining his face upon us again. And the inhabitants of the world have not yet quite fallen. This prophecy is right now, today. Your dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. The resurrection is close. It isn't far off now. For your view is as of the view of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now just before this happens, just before the earth falls, just before deliverance is made, just before the millennium starts, come, my people, Enter you into your chambers and shut your doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. 1260 days, Revelation 12. Until the indignation be overpassed. Matthew 24. When you see that abomination of desolation set up, don't worry about anything on this earth. Don't go back in your house to get anything. Just go. Because Satan will be on your tail. But the earth will open and swallow up the army he sent after you. Go into your chamber, shut your doors, and wait for three and a half years until all this destruction and danger be overpassed. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. They're all going to get it. But we have opportunity offered to us to escape it all. Pray. Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape and be hid until this thing is overpassed. We have that opportunity, and it's very close. The inhabitants of the world are about to fall. It's time for us to bring forth the man-child in our lives, and maybe God will have mercy upon us and hide us in our chambers.